Good morning, church. My name's Cody Labarth, and I am new to the team here at Missio. I've met uh, a few of you, and glad to be here this morning. Um, I've been spending a lot of time with the Casanova congregation, and things are going great there, but uh, especially excited to be able to be here, sing, and open God's word with you all this morning. Uh, Today, we're going to continue our journey through the, the book of Mark. Uh, Last week, if you were with us, Levi walked us through um, some verses that are quite important, actually, to understanding today's text. Now, if you've been with us in previous weeks, you know that we've been seeing some uh, consistent themes. Mark is a fast-paced book. A lot happens. Jesus is revealed quickly as the very Son of God, and we see him teaching with authority and proclaiming that the kingdom has come and performing various miracles and miracles. People are so intrigued and crowds begin to follow him and there's just so much happening. Uh, But throughout that time, we've continued to see a a repetitive theme that the disciples, those who follow Christ, are still failing to truly understand him for who he is. They see a glimpse. They think, oh, this is a a holy man. This is a powerful man. There's something unique about him. But they fail to truly understand who Jesus is. And if you were here last week, you remember that at the end of chapter 8, Jesus asked his disciples this question, who do you say that I am? And if you remember Peter's answer, he says, you are the Christ. And it's the first time in the gospel of Mark that someone proclaims that Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah who all of the Jews were waiting for. And it seems like finally, Finally, someone gets it. Finally, someone understands that this man is the promised one. However, a few verses later, we're left wondering if he truly understands who Jesus is. Only a few verses later, he begins rebuking Jesus as he tells all of the disciples that that he, even though he is the Christ, that he is going to suffer, that he's going to be killed. And three days later, he's going to rise again. And so as Peter begins to rebuke him, we understand Peter Peter doesn't truly understand who Jesus is. The disciples, they don't fully get it. Peter may think that Jesus is the Christ, but but he's expecting William Wallace, Braveheart fans. He's expecting a liberator, a conqueror who comes and reestablishes Israel as God's earthly kingdom. They don't expect a martyr. They don't expect a man who's, gonna, who's going to suffer and die at the hands of, of their oppressors. But what I want to do today is, is to redraw your attention to, to what Jesus says right at the beginning of chapter 9 in verse 1. After he's, uh, he's been teaching his disciples, after Peter's rebuked him and he begins teaching his disciples again, he says this, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And this is where we're going to pick up today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. And so if you would, read with me. The word of God says, after six days, my iPad reloaded. (laughs) May have to go to the, there we go, it's back. All right, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John 
and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray that as we look more closely at this this text, your very word, that you will use it to shape us, to mold us, to convict us, and to teach us truth that we might worship you and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna jump in. We're We're gonna take a closer look at some of these verses. Now, if you remember what we just said, the last thing Jesus taught his disciples is that there were some of them there who were going to see the kingdom come with power. And I think it's no coincidence that six days later, Jesus is taking his three closest disciples up to the mountain for this experience. Now there are a few uh, possible interpretations of what Jesus meant whenever he made that statement that some would see the kingdom come with power. We're not gonna go into all of the possible interpretations. Some people say he was referring to his, his future resurrection. Some were saying that he was referring to the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Some would say that that this kingdom coming with power refers to how the gospel would spread through the preaching of the early church or even the destruction of the temple uh, in Jerusalem in AD 70. Finally, some people think that this is is a a very future promise that is not not fulfilled until the the second coming and the final establishment of God's kingdom. But what I want to point out to us today is that we have to pay attention to this this immediate context of what what follows that uh, that promise of Jesus. And if we do that, we're gonna see that that it's important that only six days later, he takes some, some of his disciples up to the mountain. And what they see there, uh, what what takes place there is truly, truly awesome. Now to understand what takes place as they go up onto this mountain, uh, it helps if we think about some, some important Old Testament events. Now there's a lot that we could get into. What I, what I really wanna draw our attention to is, is the giving of the Old Testament law. And if you're familiar with, with how that took place, you remember that in Exodus chapter 24, after Israel has, has been led out of Egyptian slavery by Moses, and they're standing there at Mount Sinai, there to worship God as he had miraculously delivered them, 
that, that this takes place, God commands Moses along with three other people and the 70 elders of Israel and he commands them to go up onto Mount Sinai and to worship him there. And, and as God explains to Moses what he's gonna do, he actually explains that, that, some, that, that those three and the 70 elders, they would go with Moses partly up the mountain. They would go halfway. But only Moses would be allowed to draw near to the Lord and to draw near to him and worship him. So they, they all go up and it says that, that as they go halfway up that, that those who were with Moses, they actually beheld God himself. And it says that they looked upon him and, and that actually there was, there was a, a clear barrier as if there was like a clear stone that separated them from God so that they could see God, but that they were protected from his very holiness and from his majesty. And then it says that, that Moses himself goes even further up on the mountain and he receives the, the tablets of stone, which detailed all of the Old Testament law and the commandments for how God's people were to, to live and to worship God. And as he does so, it says that a cloud covers the mountain and that the glory of God, with his presence being there, the glory of God dwelt there and it was as if a devouring fire was on the top of the mountain as the cloud covered it. And it says there Moses met with God on that mountain. Now, as I tell this story, some of you are probably putting the pieces together. Some of these things sound familiar to what's happening in Mark chapter nine. And I draw our attention to Exodus 24, not because those verses are necessarily the key to understanding what happens in Mark nine, but as we think about those, those parallels, those similarities between these two stories, it helps us understand that something very significant is taking place in Mark chapter nine. So when Jesus takes his three closest disciples up onto the high mountain, the scripture says that he was transfigured before them. Another way of of saying transfigured is simply to say that, that he changed before their very eyes. And what actually happens is that the disciples, as they're, they're looking at Jesus, they behold his glory. The word says that, that Jesus' clothes become radiant. They become shiny. And they're so intensely white that Mark says that there is no one on earth who could ever bleach or dye or produce a, a, a garment that is that intensely white. So we have to ask the question, why, why is, are these things happening? Why, why did Jesus' clothes turn white? And as you read through the scriptures, you, you will notice that often the, the color white is associated with heavenliness. I wanna remind us of a few things. In, in Daniel chapter seven, the prophet Daniel, he has a vision of one that he calls the ancient of days. And as we read that, that prophecy in Daniel 7, you, we realize that he is, he is looking at God the Father. And it says that the ancient of days sits down on a throne and it notes that his clothing, the very clothing of God is white as snow. Again, we're reminded in, in the Gospel of Luke, whenever those who, who were going to uh, to Jesus' tomb, they walk into the tomb where Jesus' body once laid and that there were two men standing there and the, the, the author notes that the attire of those men was dazzling or shiny might be a, a synonym. In Acts chapter one, when Jesus ascends into heaven, 
Again, two angels appear, and what are they wearing? They're wearing white robes. In Revelation 20, whenever, whenever the apostle John is, is beholding this heavenly vision, he witnesses the great and final judgment that's going to take place. And when he looks at God, he notes that God himself sat down on a great white throne. Now I'll point these things out to, to help us see it's clear that, that what takes place in this transfiguration of Jesus, Jesus changing before the eyes of the disciples, as they see his glory and his clothes are turned white, that they are not just looking at, at a holy man. They are not just looking at, at a good teacher. They're not looking at, at only a miracle worker, but they are beholding God himself. Mark continues on to help us see what, what is taking place. And it says that uh, there appears to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus in verse four. Now we covered just for a, a moment uh, who Moses is as he led the people of Israel from, from Egypt. I wanna just note a few more things about Moses. Moses was the chosen instrument of God who led his people from Egypt, Egyptian slavery and he was integral in the forming of, of God's people as his chosen holy people who would, who would live and declare his glory to the nations and all of the earth. And not only that, Moses was the man who, who received the law. He stood as a mediator between, between a holy God and a sinful people. And he stood on their behalf as a mediator who pleaded for, for mercy from God to show mercy to his people that they, that they might know him, that they might declare his glory. Now, I note these things just to point out that there's likely no more important Old Testament figure than Moses. And Moses appears on this mountain with Jesus. Not only Moses, but Elijah. Elijah was a prophet uh, during the time of First and Second Kings. And he was a prophet whose, whose prophetship uh, was marked by constant conflict with the kings of Israel. And you may remember, you may remember uh, Elijah from 1 Kings as he, he actually is the one who confronts the, the prophets of Baal. And he challenges them to, to call down fire from heaven that, they might, that the fire might consume the sacrifice of a bull. And so the, the prophets of Baal, they, they, try to, they try to do their dances and all of their, their rituals and nothing happens. And then Elijah comes up and he, he drowns the bull in, in water and he douses it and he covers it with water until it's completely saturated. And then he calls upon the Lord to consume the bull and God answers. And it's one of the, the most powerful displays of, of God's power in the Old Testament. And then after that, he kills all 450 prophets of Baal. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so well, I point these things out to help us understand why do Moses and Elijah show up? These two men, they, they represent the entirety of the Old Testament law and the prophets. When you think about the law, there's no one more significant than Moses through whom the law came, that God gave the law to Moses to lead the people. And Elijah is a representative of, of all of the Old Testament prophets. Most, most commentators would say that Elijah was, was the most significant or the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And so these two men show up. 
And what we're seeing here is that Jesus him, himself said in Matthew 5, 17, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so as these two men show up, they, they are giving their affirmation, offering their validation as Jesus, as the very summation of the Old Testament law and prophets. That everything that the law had to say and all that it called God's people to and all the promises of God that come through the prophets, they are all bound up in this man, this God-man. So we have to wrap our minds around this Old Testament history, around the power of the word of God, that he is fulfilling his promises that he had made for generations and generations. And over hundreds of years, God was promising his people these things. And now in this man, they are being fulfilled. And the disciples are there beholding him. So then Peter says this. Peter says to Jesus in in verse five, Rabbi, It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I can kind of relate to Peter. Uh, Whenever I get nervous, I just tend to talk. (laughs) And that's kind of what Peter's doing here. So we see Peter's response. He says, says, let us make three tents, one for each of you. And, And that strikes us as a strange offer. Why would he say this? Now, some people say that, that Peter simply, simply did not know what to say, and so he was just trying to come up with something and saying, hey, this, is, this seems great. Let's just stay here. Let's stay on this mountain. You, Jesus, you're here. Moses is here. Elijah is here. Let's just hang out. And um, I don't think that's quite what's happening. Again, if we think of some, some Old Testament history, where it's going to help us understand Peter's response, and Peter's response is actually a little bit more mature than, uh, than some people give him credit for. Now again, to draw our minds back to the, to the book of Exodus, uh, after God has given his law, we see that he commands them to build a tabernacle. And this word tabernacle is really just a long word for a tent, a holy tent. And what we know about this, this tabernacle or this tent is that, that the very presence of God would dwell in the tent as God dwelt with his people. So this tabernacle is a a representation of a a holy place where the very presence of God dwells. So whenever Peter, he sees these three holy men and he doesn't fully understand what's going on, but he he at least understands that this this is significant. Jesus is shining white. Moses is here, Elijah is here. This is holy. So when he says, let us, let us build tents, he's saying, he's like, the glory of God is here. Let us, let us capture this. Let us do something to respond in worship. And we need to note that, that Peter, he didn't, you know, it's, it's not a fully formed idea. It's not, there's not, it's not like he, he was necessarily correct in saying that, saying it wouldn't have been right necessarily to build the, the tabernacle or the tent there. But we note that he doesn't know what to say because he was terrified. And again, we learn something from that. That this terror, this, this terror in the resp- in, in the being, as, of being in the presence of God, in the presence of, of holy, heavenly beings, that this response is quite common. We're reminded of, of the book of Isaiah, who 
And the prophet Isaiah, whenever he, whenever he has a vision and he beholds God, that he cries out, woe, woe is me, I am undone. And some, some translations would say, woe is me, I am, I am destroyed, I am torn apart. In the presence of this holy God, I'm nothing. And so we can understand Peter's response that he sees Jesus, he sees what's going on, and in the presence of holiness, he is terrified. And his response is, let's, let's build some, some tents, some tabernacles to, to capture this glory. So even though Peter's response is not, not fully correct, we do learn something from it. That again, he is in the presence of holiness. It continues on in verse 7. The word says that a cloud then overshadows them. And a voice comes out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Again, I'm going to call our attention back to, to Exodus 24. And in Exodus 24, we see this happening. A voice, uh, sorry, in Exodus 24, we see that, that in the presence of God, a cloud comes down and takes over the, the top of the mountain. And at the very beginning of the book of Mark, we remember uh, something somewhat similar. Whenever Jesus is baptized, that, that God himself uh, declares, the Father declares, this is my beloved Son. And so again, we're, we're seeing something very significant take place. A cloud appears and a voice, the Father calling out and showing those disciples who were there, this is my Son. Listen to him. Every word he says drips with authority and with truth. And in the, the, the cloud appearing and, and overtaking them, we, we're, our minds are drawn back that, that the Father, the very glory of God, the very presence of God is dwelling there with them, confirming who Jesus is. And then we see this, that the disciples look around and they realize Moses and Elijah, they've gone away. And they're simply beholding Jesus. And what's happening is that, that Mark is showing us that that, that Jesus surpasses. Not only do, do Moses and Elijah confirm and validate who he is, Jesus surpasses them so that now that the Father is there, the presence of the Father, and the Father speaking out and confirming who he is, that, that, that even Moses and Elijah aren't allowed in, in that presence. And if you can imagine in, in your mind's eye, being on that mountain and seeing all of this taking place, and beholding the Christ in his glory. And we remember that, that Jesus had told some of his disciples that some would see the kingdom of God come with power. And now they are here. They're on the mountain and Jesus is dazzling white. Moses and Elijah are at his side and the voice of God is there. The presence of God is there and he's, he's crying out from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Even Moses and Elijah, are, 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 they disappear. 
And we have to ask ourselves, is, is, surely this is it, right? This is the kingdom coming with power. Well, it's the beginning. Um, there's a glimpse, there's a glimpse of the kingdom here. But there's still much that needs to happen. And there's more for the disciples to understand. So we continue into to verse 9, and now the disciples, they're coming down the mountain with Jesus. Verse 9 and 10 say this, As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one that they, what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So Jesus commands them, tell no one what you've seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now, if you've, if you've been here for a few weeks and if you're familiar with the Gospel of Mark, you know that this is, this is a continuation of, of what we've seen in Mark. Uh, it's called the Messianic Secret. And it's that, that Jesus is revealing himself as God, but he's, he's not allowing people to go out and declare, oh, the Messiah is here. He's telling them, keep it to yourself. And so we kind of wonder, what, you know, the disciples have just seen this. They've seen this powerful display. It's confirmed. This is, this is not only the, the Messiah. This is not only Christ. This is the very Son of God. This is God himself clothed in white, just declaring and, and just um, what we've just beheld his glory. It, it seems strange for Jesus to say, don't, don't tell anyone. And so we ask ourselves, why? Why does Jesus say that? And it's important that we realize that uh, when it come, came to Jesus' mission, there, there were no shortcuts uh, on offer. That Jesus, he fully understood that, that though he was the God-man, that, that his mission was, was to go to the cross. It was to suffer for the sins of his people and to go to the cross and to rise again. And that there, there in fact was no other way for the kingdom to come with power than for, than for him to, to do that. To do, to do anything else, for the disciples to go out and to begin declaring him as Messiah, this is what we saw on the mountain, and he tells the other disciples and the crowds that follow him, if they start saying those things, what are, what are the people gonna do? But they're gonna, they're gonna try to put him on a throne and say, the liberator is here, our Messiah is here, let's set up the kingdom, Jesus. Let's, the kingdom of Israel is back. Let's overthrow the yoke of Rome and, and may God's kingdom be established again. But Jesus is, is saying there's another way. And he doesn't want his disciples to go out and declare this yet because he's, he's not going to take any shortcuts in the, the plan of God. So uh, he tells them a few other things to kind of help them in their confusion. And so Jesus is in his in his mercy is is helping the disciples understand who he truly is. If you remember at the end of of chapter eight, uh, what did Jesus say? Whenever whenever Peter confesses him as the Christ, he says, "I am the Christ. You're right, but I'm going to have to die. I'm going to have to suffer, and I'm going to have to die, and I'm going to have to rise again." And so. Whenever he says that, the disciples are confused and Peter rebukes him. So now what does he do? He takes them on a mountain and he says, he says don't doubt, have no doubt, I, I am the Christ. And he shows them that he is the Christ. 
But again, he's, he's calling them back to, to the necessity of the cross. And so the disciples, they, they, they still only have a glimpse of who Jesus is. They're growing in their understanding, but they don't, they don't get it. They don't understand why he has to go to the cross. They still want to know, when is, when is the Messiah coming? When, when are you going to set up the kingdom? What does all of this mean, Jesus? That's really what they're saying. What does this mean? And in verse 11, they ask him. They ask a clarifying question. Verse 11 says, they say, why do the scribes say that Elijah, uh, that first Elijah must come? And he says to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So the, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they're asking a, really what was, a, a, what was commonly understood by the Jews. They're saying, they're saying why, does, why do all of our teachers tell us that before the kingdom comes, that Elijah must come? And if you, if you know some of the Old Testament, you know that, that in the book of Malachi, the, the last prophet of the Old Testament, the last recorded words of God before there's this, this kind of long um, break of any revelation of God before Jesus comes, that, that actually the Old Testament closes this way. In Malachi 4, uh, the prophet says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So, so the Jews, they rightly expected that Elijah, the great prophet, was going to return before the Christ and the coming of the kingdom. But what's unexpected is that Jesus says this, he has come already. So what does he mean? And uh, if we remember the beginning of the, the Gospel of Mark, we remember that, that we're introduced to a man named John the Baptist. And what the scripture says of John the Baptist is that he is the one who fulfills this prophecy. Not only this prophecy, but Isaiah. He, he declared that, um, that there was going to be one who would come and prepare the way of the Lord. And as we think about the ministry of John the Baptist, he did exactly that. And even before his birth, when we we read about him in, in another gospel, in the gospel of Luke, it says this about John the Baptist. He's going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So we don't have to wonder very much about what Jesus meant when he said Elijah has come. It's, it's quite explicit in the Gospels. Elijah, the, the, the very uh, spirit and power of Elijah was found in John the Baptist. As John the Baptist proclaimed a message of repentance, and what did he say? He, he called the people to repentance, to turn from their sin and their idol worship, to return back to their God, to be baptized. And not only that, he declared, he, 
that there was going to be one who was going to come after him who was even greater than he was and that he wasn't even worthy to, to tie the sandals of the one who was coming. So it's quite clear when Jesus says that Elijah has come that he was referring to John the Baptist. But then he again draws the disciples' attention to this, that it's written of the Son of Man, Jesus, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And so he's constantly putting before them, yes, you call me teacher and that's correct. Yes, you call me Lord, you call me Christ and that's correct. Yes, I am the Messiah, behold me. I shine with the very radiance of God. I am God himself. He's showing them these things constantly. But coupled with that, he's, he's showing them there is no other way for me but to go to the cross and to die for my people and to rise again. So we're seeing time and time again, and Mark 9 helps us see this even more cle clearly. Jesus is the Christ, but he must suffer and die and resurrect. That the kingdom has come in him. All of the kingdom is wrapped up in him. But the way that that kingdom's going to come is not the way that, that the people expect. It's not a liberator and a conqueror and an earthly kingdom, but it's through his death and resurrection that the kingdom is truly going to come with power. And so through Jesus, he is, he is, God himself is going to create a people who are restored back to him and worship him now and for all of eternity declaring his glory to the universe. And so I simply wanna, wanna ask us a question, all of us this morning as we close is, and the question is this, do, do we see Jesus for who, who he truly is? If you're here and, and you've, never, you've never considered Jesus in this way, you've never considered him as God himself who took on flesh, who went to the cross, who suffered, who died on a cross, who rose again and defeated death so that we might all be restored to God. If you've never considered that, then I would just put before you, do not delay. Trust this man, worship this man. Put your faith in him. And for those of us who, who have seen him and we do believe, I just wanna offer a word of encouragement that as we read Mark 9, we're confirmed, our, our great hope is confirmed that, that Jesus' death and resurrection, they were the, the very plan of God from the beginning of time. That, that it wasn't an accident that Jesus went to the cross. That he, he reigns today. That he did rise from the dead and today he reigns. And the kingdom is here. It's not complete yet, but the kingdom is here as God's people worship him and he reigns in our lives and in our hearts and in all that we do. And so I just wanna encourage you believers to continue to live a life of worship before him. Obey him, love him with all your heart as, as we were called to this morning. Walk with him. Persevere, we know that, that, that holding on to our faith is not easy. Our flesh battles against us, 
our culture battles against us, we're, we are fools in the eyes of the world for what we believe. But God's word offers us great hope that this king, this man who the disciples beheld and they saw a glimpse of his glory, that he is coming back, that he reigns even today, that there's a day coming whenever he's going to appear again and we will all behold his glory. And the word says that every knee is going to bow before him. Whether they want to or not, he will reign and be worshiped and he will establish his kingdom. That there is a new heaven and a new earth that is coming and that he will reign over his people. And and the scripture says that, that he will be with us and we will be with him and that all will be made right and well. And so in that, believers, we put our hope and Mark 9 points us to those things. Would you pray with me? Lord, your word is so powerful. God, as we consider your words this morning and we think of Jesus, the God-man, the hope of, of all of the world there on the mountain with his disciples, Lord. In your mercy, you saw fit to to reveal to them who Jesus was so that even now, we, your people, we have the benefit of seeing Jesus for for who he is, your son, who though, um, though he dwelt in heaven with you in his glory, he decided uh, to willingly go to the cross for us, God. And he, in his death and resurrection, he makes a way for us. God, I pray that you help us see it clearly and that you give us a conviction um, to live for you, to worship you, just to respond to your word as we should. I ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.